Good morning. It's been really good to be with you the last three weeks. I'm a little sad today that it's going to end. Um, I think I said the first Sunday I was here that I've had opportunity after Pastor Mike to come and preach, and then after Dustin and Olivia to come and preach, and now after Stephanie and Joey to come and preach. Tommy, I can never remember his name. I'm so sorry. Hopefully you're not listening. <laughs> but I do pray that as you're seeking um, God for direction, that uh, you would have the discernment to know who the right person is um, in your next season going forward. In the meantime, you get Brent back next week. I saw pictures of him on the beach this week, uh, so it seems like he's enjoying his mini vacation. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Diane LeClaire. I teach theology at Northwest Nazarene University, and I'm also um, pastor, one of the associate pastors at College Church. I'm actually switching roles as of two weeks ago. I went from four years of being college student pastor to now being pastor of congregational care. And so I'm really, really jazzed about that. But I love to preach. And Scott Daniels kind of likes to do that every week. So this has been a wonderful opportunity for me to be with you. Our text for today is Luke chapter 11. And we've been going through Luke our lectionary gospel for the year. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we were challenged to uh, make a comparison of who we were in the text of the Good Samaritan. And I suggested that rather than compare yourself to the Samaritan or the religious folk, that uh, we all should at least identify ourselves with the one who is beaten and the one who needs salvation, because we've all come up from the pit. And then last week, we had fun with Mary and Martha, and trying to figure out that kind of contrast. Well, we have contrast this week in our text, but the contrast is a little different. And so um, we're not focusing so much on you, but we're contrasting maybe some images of God. Beginning with verse 1, chapter 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. These, then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him in the middle of the night, at midnight, and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, 
A friend of mine is on a journey and has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, Yet because you of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Um, those words there have the implication if you keep on pounding on the door. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the doors will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here we have Jesus teaching on prayer. There's so many things in this text that I could go through. We could have sermons on how to pray. We could have sermons on forgiveness. We could have sermons... um, on this wonderful text of uh, what it means that God is our Father. There's so many different themes within this particular text, um, and yet I need to focus on something. And so I want to focus on, first of all, that Matthew and Mark's description here, where we find the Lord's Prayer, are very different. There are differences between Luke and Matthew's description. In Matthew, the Lord's Prayer is placed in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the grand teaching where Jesus covers all the basics of the faithful, holy life, the wonderful Sermon on the Mount. Luke doesn't even bother to tell us where they are. In Matthew, we get the longer version of the Lord's Prayer that most of us have memorized. In Luke, we get a shorter version, followed by a parable that Matthew doesn't even include. In Matthew, the Lord's Prayer is in the context of telling us not to be like Pharisees, who prayed in order to be heard and to be seen. Luke seems to give us a context that is not for the crowd, where maybe the Pharisees were listening in, but for the disciples. It feels more intimate, and its point more personal. What comes right before this teaching really matters. Jesus is praying. 
And we are to assume that the disciple who asks the question, teach us to pray, has been moved by what he has heard. I want to hear it too. I long to be taught by Jesus how he himself prayed. In this passage, we don't hear his actual words to God, but we are not left in doubt about the importance of prayer to Jesus. The few glimpses that we do get of Jesus' prayers in the New Testament, like John 17, for example, show us enough to tell us that what Prayer meant to Jesus, prayer should mean to us. But he does show us through his consistent getting away, through his life of dependence on God. And he shows us the bringing to God of our deepest and most perplexing problems, and waiting there for light and strength to face them. He shows us the recognition that adequate living depends not so much on what we do as what we permit God to do in us and through us. He shows us the conscious, purposeful act of letting God have his way with us, of yielding ourselves to him and his will for us. And he shows us that we cannot learn to pray simply by learning the words of a prayer. Prayer means so much more. I do not think that we ask God enough this question, teach us to pray. We act like we're supposed to figure it out on our own. When was the last time you asked God to teach you to pray? But we would do well to pay attention to how Jesus guides us, how he teaches us, even in this passage. And so Jesus, in his teaching, as he so often does, tells us a parable. But a great deal of misinterpretation of this text has come from a misinterpretation of the parable. So let's go through the parable. Really important. So we have a friend who needs bread. He needs bread because he has a guest coming to town. And it would be culturally unthinkable not to serve your guest bread. One piece for the guest, one piece for yourself, and then another piece of bread to give the impression to the guest that he or she is not taking your last piece of bread. And so he asks for three. You need to understand that this culture is a very shame-honor 
faith-based culture. Um, it's not that he just wants to appear good out of some sense of pride, but there are cultural practices that are absolutely key in the values of this setting. And so he did what I'm sure many of us would do. We went to a good friend and asked for a little help. My guest is arriving. It's, it's midnight. Help me out. And so his request is not something um, out of the ordinary. It might not be bread we go to friends to ask for, but we go to friends to ask for things. And it's quite reasonable if they're really a friend that we should have some sort of expectation that they will respond to us. And yet at this time, this friend refuses to help. What we do sometimes is we misinterpret parables by always making God one of the characters. That's our temptation. It's what we tend to do. And so we put God in all of these different roles where Really, that's in a misinterpretation. And this is one of those places. Jesus says that the friend who isn't acting very friendly or neighborly at all, Jesus says that he might not open the door on the basis of friendship, but he will open the door if you keep pestering him. If you keep knocking, if you keep yelling, if you keep bothering. And so some have interpreted this to mean that God may not answer the first time. But if you keep pestering him long enough, like a fly buzzing around him, that perhaps God will eventually answer. And people have written sermons on this text about the need for persistent prayer. Put more simply, be obnoxious and God will listen to you. (laughs) Be shamelessly audacious and God will have to answer to you because he gets annoyed. But if we look closely, Jesus means the exact opposite from this. Not that it's not good to keep praying and being consistent. But Jesus is setting up the bad friend to tell us exactly what God is not like. God is not a bad friend. Rather, God is the opposite. If you ask, he is quick to listen to you. Seek, and you will find him more than willing to assist you. When you knock, God will answer the door immediately and help you. God is a God with an open-door policy. He is not stubborn. We don't have to wear him down. God is there, or 
here, rather, to care for us, to take care of us, to be God to us. Luke doesn't even add the qualification that Matthew offers. Matthew says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Here we have no condition. Ask, seek, knock. God is not a bad friend. He loves you as his own. And so the interpretation that contrasts God with the bad friend is where we need to go. And this is reinforced at the end of the passage. Not only is God not a bad friend, God is not a bad parent. God is not a bad father. If you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. If you ask for an egg, he's not going to give you a scorpion. And he says you, as good parents, wouldn't either. And so if you, human as you are, know how to give good gifts to your children, how very, 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 very much more is God going to be loving to his children, namely you? Of course, this asking, this knocking, this seeking has also been misinterpreted. It doesn't mean we ask for a Cadillac and get a Cadillac. Oh, don't laugh. You can find that on some station this, this morning. It doesn't mean we get everything we want. In fact, one of the greatest surprises of this text we find in the last phrase. I used to teach preaching at NNU. And one of the things that I taught those young preachers is one of the things that you need to do to have the scriptures come alive is to find what is surprising in the text. And so in a sense, yes, we are to ask, we are to knock, we are to seek. We're allowed to ask God for what we need. But here's the surprise. What does God give us when we ask, seek, and knock? He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives us himself. When Jesus prays, even though we don't understand the mystery, we are to see that God answers him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit the power of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit. And amazingly, God offers the same to us exactly, but we can miss it if we only aspire to lesser things. Ask, and the Holy Spirit will be given to you. Seek, and you will find him. Knock, and the door will be open to his very presence. 
which, after all, is the very purpose, the very essence of prayer, to be in God's presence. And we have analogies. We can't really grasp the very essence of God, but we have analogies, and two are here. God is like your closest friend. And being in the presence of your closest friend, there's warmth and safety. There's kindness, there's love, there's concern. Now, all of us didn't have the opportunity to have good parents, but we can imagine good parents and what it is like to be in the presence of a good parent who tells us over and over again that you are lovable, that you are worthy, that you, even you, God has died for. God, the great parent, the one who reassures us of unconditional love and concern. And this one thing, this gift, he cannot give us without our asking. Parents can give children what they need, even though they might not even know that they're receiving it. But God cannot give us himself except to those who are ready and eager to receive him. And so we ask and we knock and we seek and God will absolutely answer that prayer through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I could stop there. But it would do us well to look at the actual pattern or model that Jesus gives us here. Again, Luke's version is short. Perhaps we might say he gives us the basics. And so we would do well to pay attention to them. Four points that I'd like to highlight. First of all, we are to pray for the kingdom of God to come. There's a word in the New Testament, it's called Maranatha, it's God come quickly. We are to pray for God's kingdom to come. But sometimes if we don't think it through, I believe that we have wrong images of what it means for God's kingdom to come or what the nature of God's kingdom is. Some Christians want to imagine them with when the skies break open and Jesus returns, he will come on a big white horse with a big white sword and will defeat all his enemies through revenge and anger and destroy the earth 
not quite sure that's really the image of the kingdom of God that we need to have. Because the kingdom of God, when God comes, he will not change his nature. And God's nature, where do we find it? Where, If you were to pick one place in Scripture where the very nature of God is revealed to us, I hope you would think of the cross and the self-sacrificing, self-emptying, humility-based expression of the nature of God. And so I believe that when that future kingdom comes, it will not be a kingdom of warmongering, but as we're even told, a kingdom where swords are beaten into plows and lions lay down with lamb. But not only are we to pray that the kingdom of God come in some future sense, but very much so, and very much so as Wesleyan holiness people, when we ask for the kingdom of God to come, we should mean now. And how does the kingdom of God come on earth? Certainly through the presence of the Holy Spirit, but also through the hands and the feet of disciples like you and me. We are to bring the kingdom of God here now by also being people who prefer lions laying down with lambs, where we offer peace and kindness and unconditional love. The kingdom of God we must pray for in the sense of Maranatha, God, come, but also in the sense, may your will be done in us as we try to show the world the truest nature of God. Secondly, one of the basics, we pray for daily bread. Do you know it's okay for you to ask God for stuff for yourself? Particularly daily bread. Daily bread. Of course, we have that Old Testament image of manna. And God did something really interesting with manna. You couldn't store up manna, could you? The second day, it would be spoiled. And so you have to gather it up um, every day. And so in a sense, um, if we try to gather up grace or gather up time with God so that we can like get it all done on Sunday and have the rest of the week free, there's no like storing up. God gives daily bread, which means we need to be attentive 
to God and his presence daily. But God, remember, wants to give good gifts to his children. And if we seek daily bread, God will give it. The abundant grace of God. Third, one of the basics, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Again, with the assurance that when we repent, God will forgive. There's no question. When we confess, he is gracious and will forgive us of our sins. But like Matthew, we have another command here. Because we have so received the grace of God, and receive the forgiveness of God, not dependent on ourselves, but on his unconditional love. We are to forgive as well. Which speaks to me of the fact that receiving the generosity of God will make us generous with mercy and grace to others. Now, I do have to say that this text, other texts in the New Testament, have been used to guilt and shame people into forgiving with the mindset that if you don't forgive, God will take away your forgiveness. We need to be patient with people. One of the things I do at College Church is I have a group um, that I run of survivors of abuse. And the church really does need to figure that one out. Um, because we say things that hurts and does not help. But one of the things we do, we tend to rush people into forgiveness. Sometimes it takes an incredibly long time to get there and God understands and so one of the worst things a pastor can do I believe is to stand um, for a congregation in the average congregation one out of five people have been abused in some form but it's further abuse for a pastor to stand and say, today you must forgive or God is going to strip your forgiveness from you. It is not that easy. Sometimes it takes a while. And even if we do want to look at a parable such as the unmerciful servant, I don't think that we see the grace involved in that parable. Oh, man, I wish I had time. Really quickly, you know the, the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? So the, this guy owes the king lots and lots of money. Um, the king forgives the debt. That guy goes to somebody who owes him a little bit of money, demands, right? 
And because he can't pay, he gets really angry. And then the king finds out, comes back. And we think in our minds that the king is giving the person, the unforgiving man, the punishment that was set up in the beginning. But you need to look really closely. If you want to look sometime, it's Matthew 18. The original punishment is that the man and his wife and his children are to be sold into slavery. And in the end, the king's punishment is to simply jail the man. Even in the parable of the unmerciful servant, we see the grace of the king. You can't guilt or shame somebody into forgiveness. It just thwarts the process. But rather, there is this sense, though, that as we, over a long period of time, understand the true nature of God and the generosity that led him to even die for us who were unworthy of such. When we experience the lavish grace of God, that grace will transform us into being people generous with mercy for others. At least that should be our prayer. And then finally, lead us not into temptation. Which is weird. Because it's very clear in the book of James that God does not tempt us nor lead us into temptation. Bible scholars are now starting to see that taking the the Greek words literally here is probably not the right translation. And so it's not God don't lead us in temptation. God don't let us be led into temptation. And it is appropriate for us to pray for God's help in temptation. We are told elsewhere, when we are tempted, God will give us a way out. And so this should also be our daily prayer. Why? Just so that we can't be tempted? It's because the leading of temptation takes us away from the heart of God. Sin takes us away from the heart of God. And so a positive way to read, lead us not in temptation, is lead us to you. Lead us to you who has everything that we need. And so this morning, I think, I think, what I want to say is remember who God really is. God is an incredible friend. God is the perfect parent. Remember his love 
remember his care, remember his generosity, remember his presence with you. You know what? Jesus gave us a really good way to remember the nature of God. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He gave us away holy communion. But it's more than just an act of remembrance in our tradition. It is also an active, present, living, experiential means of grace now. It is bread, sustenance. It is mercy, undeserved and unconditional. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit and his presence here. When we receive Holy Communion together, we don't understand it. It is a mystery, but God's presence is uniquely and potently present as we receive the elements of simple bread and cup. So as we receive this morning, I pray that you may simply more fully know that you are loved, that you can testify to the true self-emptying nature of God, and that you receive this morning. I pray that you receive this morning whatsoever grace you might need for today. Let us pray. Holy God, I thank you for your word that comes to alive to us through your Holy Spirit. And I thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. And I thank you that even now your Holy Spirit prepares our hearts to receive again the expression of your abundance of grace and mercy for us. And so I do pray this morning that as we receive these elements of bread and cup, that they would be a means of grace to us. May we be aware of our need. And may we understand that our deepest need is to be in your presence. Draw us to you daily and in these moments. In Christ's name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the drink of the new covenant. And when you drink this, 
be thankful. This is for the remission of your sins, that you might be cleansed from their burden. Jesus, in that Last Supper, told us to do this often. Not just to remember with our minds, but to experience the Spirit of Christ with us in the depths of our being.